Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. On March 8th, 1971, eight ordinary citizens broke into the office, FBI office in Media, Pennsylvania, a town just outside Philadelphia. They took hundreds of secret files and shared them with the public. In doing so, they uncovered the FBI's vast and illegal regime of spying and intimidation of Americans exercising their First Amendment rights. On the night of the fight of the century boxing match between Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier, the activist calling themselves the Citizens Commission to investigate the FBI, picked the lock on the door of a small FBI field office. They took every file in the office, loaded them into their suitcase, and walked into history. We're joined today by Joanna Hamilton, the director of this wonderful documentary called 1971. It is opening uh, in theaters here in Los Angeles, March 13th, uh, and it is uh, well worth uh, your time to see this movie. It is a look into history, and again, I'm thrilled to have uh, joining us today Joanna Hamilton, director of 1971. Joanna, welcome to film school. Thank you so much, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, you're welcome. And uh, tell me uh, a little bit, and this is uh, of particular interest. I ask this of almost every filmmaker, but tell me how you found out about this story, and at what point yeah. did you make the decision that this was uh, something you wanted to do a film about? I, I mean, I consider myself to have had the great good fortune to have been friends with Betty Metzger. Um, Betty Metzger, um, she and I were friends for many years. We had a personal relationship that predated this uh, professional collaboration. Betty was the journalist to whom the Citizens Commission leaked the documents. Um, they sent them to her when she was a journalist at the Washington Post. And at the time, you know, the, 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 it was really quite extraordinary. The uh, Post had to make the decision whether or not to publish the first stories about these documents. And the, the first documents already revealed this um, illegal domestic spying uh, that was going on. At the time, we still didn't know it was called COINTELPRO at the beginning of the story. But immediately, it's obvious that there are nefarious things going on. And it was the first time that FBI documents had been seen in public. Um, so anyway, Betty was the journalist who broke that story, and she and I have been friends for a long time. And, um, you know, over the course of several years, she was researching and writing a book that came out last year called The Burglary, The uh, Discovery of J. Edgar Hoover's Secret FBI. And she shared the outline of the story with me, and uh, I was fascinated immediately for a whole host of reasons. I mean, that era in history is just been a particular period that has fascinated me since I was a teenager. I mean, it was just an extraordinary period in, in American history. Um, and then you had, you know, everything else, uh, this, mm-hmm. you know, these ordinary citizens who risked everything, um, you know, you know, obviously tremendous risk to themselves, but ultimately ended up benefiting democracy enormously. And they were going to be, you know, stepping out for the first time. They were never found. They were never caught. It was one of the largest FBI investigations ever. Hoover was incensed, and he never managed to find them. Mm-hmm. Well, in the film, what was the, there was a word uh, he was apoplectic about what That's had right. happened in in That's right. media uh, Pennsylvania. Um, now, th- one of the fascinating things, so many fascinating things about 1971, was the fact that uh, the FBI had 500 or so, give or take, field offices. 
uh, yes. throughout the United States, and many of them, as the one in in media, media was. Is it, am I saying that correctly? Media or yes. yeah, yeah, media. Um, I want to say media, but I I know that's not right. But anyway, yeah. uh, so it was a small office, just an office with a with a door and a regular lock on it, and. Uh, who knew? I mean, I don't uh-huh. remember that part, but that was that was really a very important part of the story and, and how that unfolded. That's right. That's right. As you say, you know, there, were, there used to be 500 of them, of them across the country. They were traditionally typically smaller offices that weren't particularly well guarded. You know, three or four or five agents in those offices that were really servicing smaller towns. And after the break-in, Hoover closed down every single one of those offices. Yeah. Well, and so, and then hence began the uh, the massive manhunt for the people who broke into uh, the office. That's right. Now, let's talk a little bit about the the people themselves. Uh, there are a number of wonderful people involved, but Bill uh, would probably be the top of the list in terms of people who were kind of the guiding light. Yeah, the in- for sure. And the intellectual kind of uh, guru of the people involved. Tell us a little bit about um, absolutely. Bill. Yeah, Bill, Bill Davidon was a uh, professor of physics and mathematics at uh, Haverford College um, and was a huge, uh, very, very politically active, um, had participated um, in an enormous number of um, demonstrations. Um, he was opposed to the war. He was, uh, he was really opposed to war of any kind. Um, he was a pacifist. Um, but he was the one who then you know, started, I always, I always think of it, Mike, as a little bit of a sort of a right-angle turn. You know, there were so many people who were opposed to the war in Vietnam, but then Bill, you know, figured that actually what was, what was interesting and very distressing was that there was a sense, a pervasive sense in the movement that they were being spied upon, and it was creating and fermenting this sense of paranoia. Um, some people, you know, would literally accuse each other of being paranoid. Um, and he thought, you know, this is really incredibly destructive. You know, we need to know, and we are allowed, you know, we should be allowed to be exercising our First Amendment rights. You know, the right to dissent. We can disagree. We are allowed to disagree with our government. Um, and so that was really the genesis um, of the of the break-in. I mean, a break-in was a, really the, the last resort. Um, he had participated in a lot of draft board raids, which were, you know, there were many, many, many of them at the time, as I'm sure you know and your, and your listeners know. But this was slightly different. Um, and as I say, it was really kind of a last resort. But they, they, uh, he gathered the group together. He asked, you know, a handful of people who were largely uh, academics mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. Um, and a couple of them were, were younger. Um, Keith and Bob, who are in the film, were in their sort of late teens, early 20s. Um, people whom he clearly uh, respected, even though they were very young, um, both for either for their technical capabilities and just uh, for their, you know, devotion to the cause. Um, so he gathered them together. He, he asked them all if, they, if this is something that they would be willing to do. And a couple of people did say no. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, eventually he ended up with, a, they ended up with a group of nine, and then they, it, it would end up um, eight would actually break in. Right. I want to, I want to just re- quickly remind our listeners that we're speaking with uh, Johanna Hamilton, and she's the director of 1971. Um, there are other, you mentioned Keith and Bonnie, Bonnie Rains, John Rains, Bob Will- Williamson, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Keith right. Forsythe, I believe. Yeah. Um, That's exactly right. Uh, so, uh, again, as you described them, you know, students, uh, professionals, uh, but a, a, a very uh, highly developed sense of civic responsibility. 
And yep. uh, just to go back, what you said about the, you know, there had been break-ins before, and they had been in the draft uh, offices, the uh, where the yep. draft records were kept. And I, I have to say, probably in terms of security, probably the low-hanging fruit in terms of a federal office for a, for a break-in. But obviously, That's absolutely right. but what was made this so exactly. audacious was an FBI uh, field office, and 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 struck right at kind of the heart of of so many things that the FBI had been trying to keep secret from the public. I just want people to understand the context. This was something that was only hinted at. I know in the civil rights movement, uh, Martin Luther King and his people were convinced that they were being tailed and they were being mm-hmm. uh, uh, mal-mowed, as they used to say back in the 60s, by, by the FBI. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- so this for this was we're beginning to get confirmation. And this is the nation is starting to understand that this is more than the uh, the uh, rantings of somebody who might be paranoid. Right. Well, well, that's exactly it. I mean, so, th- so precisely, this was going on, and, and it was, but it was literally only because of this break-in, Mike, that we had confirmation. Yeah. If, if it hadn't been for the break-in, you know, we wouldn't know about the existence of COINTELPRO, the counterintelligence program, which, which was, you know, the, consisted of many different programs uh, aimed, as you just said, um, uh, against the civil rights movement, against the, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, against the Black Panthers, and against the uh, the New Left, as they called them, who were the uh, protesters against the Vietnam War. Right, and the New Left was always described in the same sentence as radical communist. It was they could say right. there, there was sort of this kind of wink in 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 uh, to. Uh, what at that time might have been considered political correctness, I don't know. But at the same time, it was always strung together in a in a line of invectives about and included, uh, you know, the the most radical fringes of the political spectrum. So uh, that was pretty obvious even then. Um, tell a little bit without giving any special secret away about how you went about making 1971. Um, how was how did you get in contact, uh, and what was that process, and how did you, how long did, did it take you a little while to gain their trust? What was that sort of part of the making of 1971 like? Um, so you know, as I mentioned, I, I did have this sort of deep personal relationship with Betty. Um, I knew she was writing the book. We were very good friends, and they did. They they came a point one morning where where she phoned me up and she said, "You know, are you serious about making this film?" And I said, "Of course." <laughs> um, and at that point. She uh, she mentioned that they, you know, one or more of them had perhaps mentioned to her that they might be amenable to to going on camera. And so at that point, um, she did. She put me in touch with uh, with uh, John and uh, Keith, and we arranged a meeting. So I went down to meet with them in Philadelphia. Um, I met with Bill, um, John, Bonnie, and Keith, um, four members of the Citizens Commission, and I also met with uh, David Carries, who was. Their, their lawyer, whose yeah. services were never needed. We joke that he's the lawyer on the longest uh, no-fee retainer in history. <laughs> um, but uh, David is a, a very well-known, uh, prominent civil rights lawyer in Philadelphia. He handled many of the draft board break-in cases. He handled the Canton 28 uh, case um, defense. And so uh, it, it, he had been approached by two members of the group. And so David has sort of been on standby for the past 40 years. <laughs> um, and so, you know, we had a, we had a really... Uh, Long, very good, um, frank, frank conversation. Uh, I told them why I would like to make the film, and they told me why they were, you know, why they were ready to to come out and, and tell their story. Um, and uh, it wasn't immediately clear. Uh, you know, I, I, I left uh, the the meeting. Um, I came back to New York, where I live. Um, you know, obviously desperately hoping that this would work out. And then a couple of days later, I got a call from Keith to say that they were they were ready. 
So and so, uh, so and then you know and then it was just a you know it's been a process to be honest um, you know it's a, it's a in, an independently financed film and so I had to go about raising the money um, but you know as always you know you sort of you find uh, creative ways um, to go about doing things and I to be honest I, I kind of launched straight into it um, a couple of months later uh, I started filming the uh, the main interviews. Uh, which really are the backbone of the film now, mm-hmm. still to, the, to this day. Uh, we did that immediately, and so I was able to put together um, a, a fundraising reel, which I, you know, only showed to a very finite number of people. But uh, that was the beginning. And and all and really, the, to the credit of the, the the men and women involved in the in the break in at the FBI, um, the Citizens Commission, um, all very well spoken, articulate. Uh, there are a spectrum of opinions about uh, looking back on what happened, and all mm-hmm. that I appreciate in the film. I mean, this is a, these are very honest people, and uh, and and it's it's easy to see their motivations were for for as. As citizens, I mean, a citizen activist, mm-hmm. but as citizens who were concerned that the country didn't know everything it should know. and uh, Right. I, yeah. That's right. Like yeah. I say, I mean, burglary really was a last resort. Yeah. They didn't uh, aim to be, you know, felons, um, but they really felt that. And at the time, I, I mean, you laid out the context of, of Hoover and of some of, you know, what was going on at the time. But, you know, he was I think it is hard for people to remember Hoover was revered. Uh, he was greatly admired. He was also greatly feared. Yes. Um, but I think by the general public, by and large, um, he was really admired. And, um, you know, by that stage, by 1971, he'd been um, head of the FBI for almost 50 years, yeah. which is unheard of today. Um, and, you know, partly as a result of the, of the uh, documents that were taken, you know, they, the sort of end of the story really is the um, church committee hearings, you know, the the, the Congress convened the Church Committee hearings, which really looked into the activities of all the intelligence agencies. Um, but as a result, you know, there were um, guidelines put in place um, regulating the FBI's uh, conduct. And one of the things that they did was create the FISA court, but also um, put in place a 10-year term limit for an FBI director, which we still have today. Yeah, it, it, it's. I think you could argue that over a, over that period of time that J. Edgar Hoover was consistently the most uh, powerful person in the federal government, perhaps in That's the United right. States, really. I mean... Yeah. Yeah, he was the shadow president. Yeah. Yeah, he... Yeah, I don't know how many presidents. I got to think it was seven or eight or more presidents that mm-hmm. he was... During That's his right. tenure. Uh, and uh, it, it, it is... You're right. It's hard to imagine in today's uh, world a man being the head of what is really the national police force for the United States um, in, in, in that in that way. Uh, and he was a man with an agenda. He was, there was no arguing that he didn't have an agenda. I don't think you could ever have said that he didn't have an agenda. But uh, the country, for some reason, was willing to sort of be compliant about it. The, the Red Scare, a lot of things came into play that allowed him to continue to be the guy he was and, and hold the power he did. So, Right, um, exactly. Is there any sort of um, ramifications to the, I mean, in terms of what happened uh, in uh, media for the for these people for the eight people involved, it, there's a must have been a statute of limitations or what what happened? Why mm-hmm. knowing the federal government yeah. is can right. be vindictive? Is there are they beyond the uh, sort of legal action at this point? 
so you know we were we were worried about that mike as you say um we were concerned so so here's what what we knew was that the fbi had closed the case in 1976 and that was when the statute on burglary had run that was five years and believe it or not the statute on theft of government property had also run um so they closed the case um and that was really the, the biggest uh would have been the biggest reason for them not to reopen the case However, as you say, um, you know, throughout the years and certainly even in the past few years, there has been this um, zeal to prosecute whistleblowers. Yeah. And um, so we were concerned. Uh, we also knew that back in the day, Hoover wanted to charge them with espionage. Um, you know, as we, we described just how angry he was, um, you know, it was such a public embarrassment. And he'd never been publicly embarrassed, obviously, in this way before. Um, so had they been caught, it would have been draconian, uh, what would have happened to them. So uh, we didn't know, um, you know, if there was something that still existed in the Department of Justice, in the, you know, somewhere in somebody's file, you know, the statute um, for espionage never told. Mm-hmm. So we didn't know whether something like, we thought it was unlikely, but we didn't know. And so because we were operating with imperfect information, we erred on the side of caution and we kept the story uh, very quiet and we protected their identities, really, until the very, very, very last moment. Um, they were never, uh, you know, in the film, um, in Betty's book. They weren't even in the galleys. Um, so we were very, very careful. And uh, the day before, Betty's, uh, Betty's book came out a tiny bit before the, the film premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival last year. And, yeah, the, the night before, um, we sort of all held our breath a little bit. And um, there was some publicity that led up to the publication of the book. I mean, they landed up on, they landed up on the front page of the New York Times and on the Today Show. Um, and what happened was uh, those journalists did go and get a, a statement from the FBI. And that statement was, we are a different institution today than we were back in the 70s, partly as a result of the revelations that came out in the 70s. Um, so they didn't reference the burglary directly, um, but it was certainly uh, yeah. a clear indication that, um, you know, that was then, this is now, we're a different institution, and it was clear that they weren't going to uh, instigate um, prosecutions. And so that was a, a great relief. I think it's, you know, an open question and it's a good discussion to have whether or not the FBI is indeed a different institution. Right, right. But I was uh, certainly, Betty and I were very, very relieved uh, that nothing was going to happen to them. That in and of itself is a remarkable part of this story, of what you're just what you said, that that, that part of it. Because it, it, we, it, in some ways we do live, I guess we live in a different world, although you know, we can we can look at the last uh, since nine eleven. We can look at uh, the United States as being um, uh, you know, a constri- much more constricted in terms of political activity. I think kind of a self imposed restriction on a lot of people who who don't know what is possible with the, with government uh, and its ability to reach into our into our lives now. It it, it really mm-hmm. I fear that sort of since self censorship or self uh, mm-hmm. You know, self-censorship when it comes to our political actions and yeah. what we're willing to do uh, in nonviolent con- and confrontational ways with government uh, policies. Uh, it, it does feel like we're up, we're afraid. I, I think that's I don't think that's over re- overstating it. I think there's a, a fear. You know, it. you know, uh, John Rains, um, you know, he's, he's spoken a lot. We've been traveling uh, with the film and, I, you know, I hope he'll come to L.A. and of yours, we'll get to hear him in person, uh, but he speaks a lot about this, and he says precisely that. Um, he says that he, he uh, 
he doesn't necessarily, you know, he know we all know the NSA is listening in and can and has the ability to, and uh, people, perhaps as you, precisely as you say, feel. I mean, people feel less affected because uh, it's it's so hard to feel directly affected. You know, we all carry cell phones around with us. Um, you know, back in the day, there was the draft. I think it was much easier to feel very directly affected by yeah. by, by policy. Yes. Um, but John says exactly that. He says that he fears the effect that it will have on his behavior and the chilling effect that it will have. And, you know, that it's, uh, we are in some senses a nation governed by fear at the moment. Yeah, and I, I hope that changes. Uh, I, it, it feels like uh, there's sort of a, an ability uh, on the part of authorities to not just prosecute you, but in some sort of way eviscerate your life in terms of, you know, you hear about people being in prisons and solitary confinement in ways that just would have not seemed possible, even in America in 1971. And I, I, you know, I don't Mm -hmm. want to get too far down this road, but it just, yeah, I hope that things begin to move back. And the recent ruling on net neutrality certainly is hopeful that we might be moving towards a, a, a more open uh, society in that regard. So yeah. uh, that, those are there I are agree. some good things. Um, I agree. Yeah. Um, so uh, the uh, that tell me a little bit about uh, the the reaction on the part of the people that have been in the film. Talk about uh, now Bill and Keith and Bonnie. Uh, how what, what's been? How's this been in, uh, impacted their life? So you know, it was quite extraordinary. Obviously, on the day when they stepped out publicly for the first time, um, it was you know, as I said, it both a great relief, um, just in the sort of broad macro sense. Uh, it was highly entertaining to watch them. Uh, you know, their phones were ringing off the hook. You know, from friends and neighbors who made known. You know, for generations, um, saying, you know, really, <laughs> this was what you did back in the day. Um, uh, you know, it was also very, very touching. Um, Keith uh, had uh, a political differences with his uh, parents, and he told his father a couple of days before, uh, you know, they stepped out for the first time last January. And he, uh, as I say, he did, you know, they, they had very dramatic differences. His father was really quite conservative. And uh, he told him the story, you know, of these people who'd broken into the FBI office, and his father didn't recall it, but Keith told him the, the impact that they had had. And uh, his father turned around and he said, well, I think those guys deserve a medal. And Keith was so surprised. Oh, and he God. said, you know, well, Dad, I was one of those people. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, very, uh, Keith, I think, did not expect that in a million years. Um, when we did the interview, you know, four years ago now, uh, Keith said to me, and I'm trepidatious about telling my father, um, you know, which is kind of extraordinary. You know, he's now, you know, in his early 60s. Um, so, you know, really uh, wonderful. Um, great to see um, the responses from audiences. Their film has been on the festival circuit. They've traveled a lot with the film. It has really been... Uh, incredibly gratifying to see how they've been received. Um, wonderful questions. Um, you know, they're approachable. They've been wonderful conversations. Yeah. You know, uh, depending on where we've been in, in, in some of the smaller cities with some of the festivals, you know, people have literally come up to them on the street, you know, and hugged them and, and, and struck up a conversation. Uh, it's really wonderful. Yeah. And and uh, to standing ovations, my, my understanding is it's, it's the, some of the festivals it's been playing at to the crowd is yeah, literally standing for ovation. Sure. No. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always wonderful when they are there. That's right. I mean, Tribeca, certainly the first time that, um, you know, the general public got to see them 
uh, we were in Milwaukee. It was actually a very special occasion. Uh, there were a thousand people who filled this um, the, a beautiful theater in downtown Milwaukee uh, and gave them a standing ovation. That was very touching. Well, Joanna uh, Hamilton, how has this uh, impacted? Uh, <laughs> do you feel uh, it had the the impact of this film on your life as a filmmaker and as a citizen? <laughs> I mean, as a citizen as well. Well, you, you know, I mean, such a privilege, Mike. I can't tell you what a privilege to be able to tell this little-known piece of American history um, and really, you know, try and, and, and tell the full arc of that story from these ordinary people who did this extraordinary thing, who essentially could have risked everything for nothing. I mean, imagine if they'd broken in and found nothing uh, and, and they'd been caught in the process. Um you know, the, the huge political ramifications, the political story, the wonderful journalism story, um, just absolutely fantastic. Uh, and so, so many people, you know, didn't know the story. So many people do know about COINTELPRO. Fortunately, there are many history books written about it, but people didn't know about this particular instance. Um, and it's just terrific to be able to sort of have this conversation about the sort of checks and balances um, on, on government, that they're kind of the lifeblood of democracy. Well, I am so honored, and I, again, I'm uh, thrilled to have you on uh, the show today, and uh, I look forward to uh, the reaction to the public from uh, for 1971 and moving forward. Hopefully this cracks the door open for more spirited discussions about um, the direction mm-hmm. of our country and political discourse yes, and the I rest of it. And um and that that would be that and and in addition to being just a fantastic documentary, wonderful, wonderful, well done, and just every way, and uh, all the best, all the best to you. Uh, hope in the uh, future. Thank, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I, as you say, I hope it does spark these kinds of conversations. Whatever it is that people feel passionate about, you know, perhaps that they walk out of the theater feeling inspired, and in whatever it is that they feel uh, their activism uh, is, perhaps um, really. Just, just a great privilege to tell that story. Yeah, thank you, Mike. Well, thank you. Uh, any in in your future projects, if uh, coming up, please feel I would be uh, honored again to have you on the show. So, thank you, thank you again. Thank you. Thanks so much. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. 